0: We're in Matthew chapter 5. Prior to 2016, the, uh, the website dictionary.com did not have a listing for the word influencer. It's not that the word didn't exist. It did. It just had so little use that dictionary.com saw no need to include a definition for influencer. That's obviously changed with the explosion of social media. What once was the realm of celebrities who did those 30-minute infomercials that were on late at night for some skincare product, sort of endorsing something. Uh, that, that's all changed now as to, to who does that, who who gives these sort of testimonies of a product and its usefulness. It's now a massive industry that's part of the marketing strategy of virtually every major company that's selling products to the public. Expect that nearly $14 billion will be spent within the business industry this year on on using social media influencers in some way to put out their products, to give testimonies of their products. And so these are people who have grown large followings on Instagram and TikTok. There's an article recently on how to become a full-time social media influencer. Said find your niche and start posting. Find what it is that you're drawn to and just keep posting. And, And so they gave in this article the example of let's say brunch is your thing. I mean, who's got anything against brunch, right? It's a good thing. So you just start posting ideas about brunch and places to go to have brunch. And and if you can get yourself to about 30,000 followers, you can get about $350 for each post and doesn't take long after that, and you are full-time as a social media influencer helping the world know about brunch. The term influencer may have its own meaning in our culture, but the idea of reaching people and influencing them is clearly built into this Sermon on the Mount that we are studying. The idea that that a people would have influence on the world around them, that they would be influencers, is, is just part and parcel of the Sermon on the Mount. Followers of Jesus Christ are called to this kind of ministry to influence society. We are subjects of a king and part of his kingdom. We are called to have an effect on the world around us, to not be isolated. We're going to see it clearly this morning in Matthew 5, 13 through 16, and I'm going to put it under two specific sort of realms of influence that we have. One is to prevent decay, and the other is to light the way, to prevent decay and to light the way, I think, are the two things that we'll see this morning here in Matthew 5, 13 through 16. We've we we've been looking at this Sermon on the Mount under the heading of the King's Manifesto, the idea that this is Jesus saying, here, here is my kingdom, and this is what I call my subjects to live like. This is how you are to be different. This is what should mark you, That that this kingdom is unlike any other kingdom with which you are familiar, and so therefore the people who live in it should live differently from the rest of the world. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus describing life in his kingdom. This is how his disciples are to be set apart, how we are to be different and unique and having an impact on our culture. In a way, the the Sermon this morning is something is in some way a bookend to 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 jesus 's earthly ministry the whole Sermon on the Mount is sort of the launching point in matthew 's Gospel as he sets out on telling us what jesus has to say but but there 's a bookend sense if you if you fast forward to near the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, particularly the night before his crucifixion, when he is praying for his disciples, praying for those right in his midst and praying for those of us still to come, one of the things Jesus prays for his followers in John 17 is this, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. We're familiar with this prayer. Jesus pleading before his Father for those who are his followers, those who are his disciples, and he is describing them as remaining in the world, but not being of the world, as being different in substance from the world. They're not worldly in nature. They don't adhere to the world's way of doing things. They don't carry the same desires, or they should not, that the world is carrying, and seeing life on earth as the be-all and end-all of their existence. During our sojourn in this world, as followers of Jesus Christ, one of the things we we quickly come to learn is this is fleeting, that we are to hold to this life loosely, serving well, glorifying God in it, but knowing that this is all passing. Our lives are, are like a vapor that is here today and gone tomorrow. So we don't cling to this life. But Jesus in that prayer says those ominous words about the evil one and the world hating you as as followers of his, the world having hatred for that. That's that's why following Jesus makes us to be aliens and strangers in this world. That, That warning at the end of Jesus's ministry should not have shocked his disciples. They should not have heard him say that you will be reviled and hated and persecuted and suddenly said, well, wait, that's that's different from everything else we've heard because Jesus has been warning about this all throughout his ministry. This wasn't some shock as if he had only promised blessing and prosperity to his followers and not warned them of suffering and trials. On the contrary, from the very start of his ministry, Jesus warned that there would be cost in following him, that being a part of his kingdom brought with it the potential for suffering and for trials. We saw that last week, the the front of the the bookend, if you will, that Jeremy preached from the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Let me just bounce back for just a minute, Matthew 5, verses 10 and 12, the last section that Jeremy looked at with you last week, says, blessed are those Who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Strong language in there that you, as as part of my kingdom, Jesus says, will be reviled. People will defame you. They will mock you. They will insult you. They will persecute you. There will be cost to your identifying with me. And so what you saw them do to the prophets of old, they will continue to do to you who follow after me and pursue God's righteousness counter, of course, to this, as we saw in the Beatitudes, is that there's blessing still with this. It's not simply ominous warning because repeatedly he has used that word blessed. Blessed are you when you suffer in this way, when you are persecuted for righteousness sake. And just by, by way of reminder, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are meek, who are humble before God, gentle with others. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who Mourn over their sin. Blessed are those who pursue peace, devotion to Jesus Christ. By way of reminder from our study of the Beatitudes, that idea of blessing really has two connotations to it. There's the idea of being approved by God, blessed being you have God's favor because he is, he's giving you his approval. You are doing that which he has called you to do. But then there's the, the second sense, which is there is there's happiness, there is fullness of life that comes from being approved by God. There is there's something that accompanies that, and that is the satisfaction of, of being approved by God, not because of who we are, but because of what he's doing in us and, and finding his favor. The Beatitudes have have been our focus for the last few Sundays. That is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And the Beatitudes are really bookended themselves by that phrase, kingdom of heaven. He started with it in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he ended with it then in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That phrase has has gotten us started, and we're going to come back to it, kingdom of heaven. This is the the kingdom, the manifesto of this particular kingdom, and it's a kingdom of heaven, and we talked about it on week one. It's really the equivalent of saying kingdom of God, but it also captures the notion that this this is a completely different kingdom from anything that you are used to on earth. This is the kingdom of heaven. This is different from all of the reigns and uh, of those who are here on earth. Unlike any other kingdom you've experienced or know of, now, here's why this matters and why I, I just want to think on these things before we move into verse thirteen this morning. If we only had the beatitudes, we would be blessed. We would read and we would we would take in those beatitudes and we would see some of what Jesus is calling us to, and we would we would see that blessing. But we might also be tempted to focus more exclusively on the community of believers, seeing what we have from Jesus, knowing what we have in the future in terms of heaven and the promise of blessing that comes with it. And we might be tempted to think inward and to pull back from the world. That, I, you remember I said this on week one. The early monks, this was their approach to the Beatitudes, was, was this seems to be such a, a difficult standard in Matthew 5 through 7. This must just be for, for those who are just really focused, and, and they, they pull away from the rest of the world to try to fulfill these things. That would, that would make sense if it weren't for the fact that, that God made it very clear, Jesus made it very clear, that one of the chief purposes of his kingdom is to multiply. That he has called his kingdom to be a kingdom that is constantly growing, where those who are subjects in his kingdom are living in such a way that they are impacting the lives of people around them and speaking to them in such a way that they are helping to bring them into the kingdom, go and make disciples of all the nations as Jesus has commissioned to us. And so this kingdom is not meant to to move inwardly, It it is meant to rather, as subjects of his kingdom, to be a part of the world around us and to be influencing that world in such a way that people see Christ and hear his gospel. And so, as we are merciful toward others, as we're seeking to practice mercy, as we're humble before God, as we grieve over our sin, and as we pursue righteousness and hunger and thirst for that, as we strive to be devoted to our king, All of this is to be lived out in the presence of the world. They they are seeing Christ's kingdom through you and I, through those who have been called into that kingdom. And the immediate consequence of living that way, of of following after the king, the immediate consequence is what we've already read this morning, what we saw last week, and that is that there will be many in the world who will revile you for that, who will mock you for that who will reject you for that, people who will speak evil against you because they despise Jesus. They they don't want his truth and righteousness, and so they will hate you as a consequence. Again, the the human response, when somebody takes a shot at us, somebody treats us unjustly, the human response tends to be to pull back, to not not do the the whack-a-mole thing where we stick our head up in, in order to get hit again. We'd rather just stay down and be quiet, and not get hit in some way. But that's why these next verses in Matthew 5 are so important. Because what Jesus is saying now is, as you live out this kingdom character, merciful, poor in spirit, mourning, thirsting for righteousness, you will face persecution. And in light of that, he says this, Matthew 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, You, If you profess to be a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are trusting that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the sole basis for your salvation and you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are influencing the world. That's what Jesus is saying here emphatically. And These verses are are, are pretty much the conclusion to the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. These these flow right out of the Beatitudes, and they set the stage for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. As you are merciful and meek and pursuing purity and righteousness by God's grace and the power of His Spirit, you are living out a certain kind of character, a kingdom character, and it will repel many. It will stir up opposition and, and hatred against you, and you will be tempted to put your head down and shrink back and stay quiet. If the new normal is to despise biblical Christianity and the things it holds to, it is tempting to simply not be that person who speaks up and to shut up and avoid the line of fire. But that's not what Jesus describes here, is it? Completely the contrary. He says, you who choose to follow after me, you are salt of the earth. You are influencing the world. You are the light of the world. We who belong to his kingdom are called to live in such a way that we actively, persistently, continuously are influencing the world around us for Christ. First one here is you are the salt of the earth. In both of these, in the Greek, the pronoun you comes first in the phrase. That's not always the construction in the Greek. The, the fact that it does come first reminds us again that means it's emphatic that he is saying you. So he's contrasting. Verse 11, he has said, others will revile you and speak falsely against you. Verse 12, they persecuted the prophets of old. But you, you who seek to be a part of this kingdom, you are the salt of the earth. The you are, the verb there, present tense, so it's continuous. You are being. This is the state of being for who you are. You are continuously the salt of the earth. Now, what does that mean? In, in our day with abundant refrigeration, we, we, we know how important it is for when the refrigerator quits or the freezer breaks and suddenly everything is turned upside down. But for the most part, we understand we have abundant refrigeration, our food is generously loaded with preservatives, for better or for worse. And so for us, the idea of salting something to preserve it is almost a foreign concept. For us, salt is about flavor. There's sea salt, and there's kosher salt, and there's pink salt, and I use different salts for different flavors and different things, right? There's an element of that seasoning idea that Jesus has in mind, and we'll come back to that. But, but Jesus's audience would have primarily understood when he spoke of salt that he was talking about something that preserves, something that prevents decay. As one writer puts it, salt was the enemy of decay. Food spoiled, it went bad, the sodium and salt was used to draw the moisture out because the moisture is where the bacteria would develop and so things were salted to preserve them from corruption because there was this inevitable process of decay that would happen to their food. What's assumed then, in the words of Jesus, is what we know to be true. The earth is decaying. The people of this world are in a state of corruption. The world around us is continuing to get worse because man is by nature sinful. And a society that is not being actively influenced by the gospel of Jesus Christ will continue to devolve toward evil. It will continue to decay. And that's where our influence must be felt. Followers of Jesus Christ are, are given this responsibility of impacting their culture in such a way as to slow the deadly corrupting effect of sin. One of our functions in society is to be to be those who stand for the holiness and truth of God and who stand against the corrupting influences of the culture and the evil that surround us. And so, by God's truth, by the power of His Spirit in us, we are to be agents for good, who oppose evil by speaking truth to it and by pursuing righteousness, by living in such a way that it is different, and by speaking in a way that is different. And so when the culture is slouching towards sin and embracing evil and and does not want to be confronted, does not want to be told to stop or warned of the danger of evil, the body of Christ, you and I as his followers are, you are continuously to be the salt of the earth. We have a function here of speaking truth to these things and standing in the gap and speaking against the decadence of the world around us. It, and it is a seemingly, at least on this horizontal plane, thankless role, because we, we already know from what he said that the opposition will be stirred up by this. If we are to speak these things, if we are to be salt of the earth, it will anger people who don't want to be told that that's sin. They don't, they don't want to hear the word sin, much less be told that anything that they are doing or thinking could possibly be conceived as sinful. But we do this because we love God. And we love his truth. And, and he speaks of holiness and his love for purity and holiness. And so we, we are salt of the earth because we love God and we love his ways and his holiness. And second, because we love people and we do not want to see them continue on this road to destruction. We, we, we want to urge them back. And part of urging them back, we'll see in a moment, is the light of the gospel. But part of it is also speaking to their sin. It, it is speaking the truth to them and calling out that which separates them from their creator. We don't want to be like the prophet Jonah, who when told to go to Nineveh and speak against the evil in the city, got on a ship and went in exactly the opposite direction. Salt of the earth is penetrating into the culture by speaking God's truth. So we are preserving God's righteousness. We are upholding his standards. In fact, he says here, the the worst thing that could happen is for salt to become useless, no longer to function in that way. Again, Jesus's audience would understand this because of the experience of salt in their day. The, the gathering of salt, they, they didn't have the process to, to filter it out as well, and so whether they gathered it from the Dead Sea or surrounding areas, it was often laced with other impurities. There are other minerals. There may be sand. There could be stuff in there, and, and all of that would make the salt less effective. Trying to glean out the salt was important because all of the rest of it could diminish the ability of the salt to preserve and to prevent decay. And the point Jesus is making here is that the last thing we want to do is become useless in terms of this task we are called to of decaying uh, of preventing decay, of preventing corruption. It, it's interesting, the word he uses here for that phrase, lost its taste, it's it's one word in the Greek. When it says, salt has lost its taste, it's one word in the Greek, and it's the, the, the word is moreno. And it literally means to make something dull or foolish. And if you're thinking in your mind and you're making a connection between moreno and it sounds almost like our English word, moron, You're making the right connection because if you go to the etymology of moron or moronic, it'll take you back to Latin and then back to Greek and and point out that there is a connection between these two words. And so when you see that lost its taste, it's the idea of it becoming dull and useless and ineffective and unable to do what it is made for. And Jesus is saying salt has a very specific purpose to prevent decay, and also to to season food, but once it becomes mixed with other elements and with other impurities, it no longer does either and becomes dull and useless, and it no longer preserves, and it no longer flavors, and it's good for nothing. The illustration should be clear and convicting to us. The notion that we would so blend in so line up with the world, be so chiefly concerned about our own personal influence and whether or not people like us, what they think of us, such that we we try to fit in and be like the world, and the task of, of preventing decay becomes far secondary to to me elevating self and and looking like I belong here and I fit in and, and so that people don't say things against me. That's what Jesus is condemning. He's saying decay is happening all around you. You cannot afford to be participating with the world as if you are of the world, as if you just fit right in and there's nothing distinctive. There's nothing that stands out about you. There's nothing that's preventing corruption. In fact, you're, you're simply going along with it. In that case, you are not serving your purpose. And he says there's nothing left to do at this point. So preventing decay is the primary purpose they hear there. But, but I think it's also worth noting that they, they certainly understood the value of seasoning food as well, the idea that salt would, would bring out flavors. Salt has that quality, but but we know that salt can be strong. You don't want to over salt something. You, you immediately notice when somebody has made something and they've put too much salt in it and it it, it sort of bites because that's what salt does. It, it can have a, a caustic sort of um, sense to it. The reality is if we if we are speaking God's truth into this world around us, and and we are speaking it in terms of the decay and corruption and sin and evil in the world around us, we will be speaking against things. We will be speaking against the world's pursuit of evil pleasure or selfish gain. And to do so will have a caustic sort of biting effect to the world. Martin Luther put it this way, the real salt is the true exposition of scripture, which denounces the whole world and lets nothing stand but the simple faith in Christ. Luther had a way of just cutting to the chase when he said something. And now before you, you look at that and go, well, that, that just seems harsh. Is that, is that all we're doing is, is we're just condemning in some way. We're calling out sin. Remember, this is not all there is. Preventing decay is something we are called to, but it's more than that. Confronting sin, standing for holiness is important, but we're also called next to light the way. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the, all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Same construction here. Emphatic, you, you, you. Don't don't try to stand behind the trees or move back out of the crowd unless you do not want to be part of this kingdom. If you are considering yourself as a part of this kingdom, you are continuously the light of the world. This is who you are as a member of this kingdom. You are followers of Jesus, and so you continuously light the world. Just as salt implies that there's something wrong in the world, and in this case, it's decay caused by corruption and sin, so light implies that the world is naturally in darkness. The world is stumbling around in darkness and desperately needs light because of its blindness. It's ironic when you think about that, because one generation after another will tell you how enlightened they are. How much we know and, and, and how, how good we are. I mean, the that, that 17th and 18th century was the age of enlightenment because man made all of these gains in terms of, of intellect and, and philosophy. And yet, in the 20th and 21st century, most generations would look back on the 1600s and 1700s and say, those people were so backwards. There was so much they didn't understand yet. Their ethics were askew were in places. They, they, they just didn't get it. They they didn't understand nearly what we have in terms of knowledge and technology. The, The truth of the matter is that when it comes to the heart and desires of man, the world is in a perpetual state of darkness. It is spiritually blind and it is lost. Uh, Matthew is simply rehearsing things that the prophet Isaiah said repeatedly. He talks often about darkness and light because he is anticipating the coming of the Savior. And so that great chapter, Isaiah chapter 9, where it speaks of the child who is born to us, who will be the prince of peace, and all of those things, he he starts in Isaiah 9 verse 2 by saying, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. It's plunged in darkness, but Jesus Christ comes with light. The Prince of Peace comes to bring light. Isaiah chapter 60 begins, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of God has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. I think we struggle with this sometimes because we don't, we don't want to have this sort of bleak look at the world and see it as being enshrouded in thick darkness. We want to think more of the world. And, and, and that's where our culture so often goes astray with the idea that, that, that man is just by nature good. You just need to tap into man's goodness and kindness and, and, and man will rise to the occasion. The Bible constantly gives this description of man, apart from the saving grace of God, is enshrouded in thick darkness, even when he can't see it himself. He is. Matthew's already picked up on this theme back in chapter 4 when he speaks of the coming of Jesus in the region of Galilee, Matthew 4, 16. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Jesus is that great light. Jesus said it at least a couple of times in the Gospel of John. I am the light of the world. Jesus has declared that unequivocally, that he ultimately is the light. But the function of his followers, of you and I, within his kingdom, what we're called to is to light a way to Jesus. It is to see the people around us as being in darkness and to give them glimmers of light so that they can begin to see that what's changed us, what's transformed us, what we believe is in Jesus Christ who is the light, the one that they need to come to. We need to be showing them Christ and speaking to them the gospel so that people who are lost in darkness can run to the light of Jesus Christ. The reality is people who are lost in darkness generally don't realize it. They don't think they're lost. They think they're pretty advanced. They think that their sin is just evidence of their progress and their ability to do whatever makes them happy. And we see that just by the response, the Pharisees, when Jesus said, I am the light of the world. In John chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. And the very next line says, the Pharisees called him essentially a fraud. They said, you're bearing witness about yourself and your testimony is not true. We don't want to hear this light of the world stuff. We don't believe it. We dismiss it. How, How dare you accuse us with all of our religious knowledge and practice of being people who are lost in darkness and you somehow being the light. It's the same experience that you and I encounter is the same experience you and I have experienced as you've come to faith in Christ, is there was a season in life when you thought you knew better, when you thought you had it figured out. And it wasn't until the light of the gospel embraced you that Jesus Christ brought you to himself that you saw that you didn't have it at all and that you were lost in darkness and needed his salvation. That's why this this the sense of the world to say, I I don't need your light. That's why Jesus goes on in verse 16 and he explains that one of the ways they see this is our good works. In other words, when God is actively glorified by his servants loving and serving other people, by the subjects of Christ's kingdom serving people even when they despise them, Even when they mock them, and yet as servants of Christ, still serving them, still loving them, still being sacrificial, that sets up that sets up something that's hard for them to comprehend. Why are you still kind to me? Why are you showing mercy to me? Why are you striving for peace with me when I'm doing all of the opposite to you? And that's why he he brings this back to, in the same way, let your light shine before this so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. They don't have an easy way to explain why we would be sacrificial and striving for peace and humility with those even who are hurting in response. It's another way to think about this, this function is to think about another passage in the New Testament that speaks of us as light. Philippians 2, 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Credit here to John Piper just in his thinking of tying Philippians 2 back to Matthew chapter 5. He's using the idea here again, Philippians 2, of shining as lights in darkness, that you as believers are are shining as lights. How does that match up with Matthew 5? Think back to what Jesus had just been saying prior to this. Remember the the, the verses again, about you will be reviled. They will speak falsely against you. They will persecute you. You will do good works. And let's be honest, when we do good deeds, what do we generally expect? Thank you, yeah. Some, some word of appreciation. We do something nice. We do something to serve someone. And we're hoping for a little bit of gratitude, some sort of nod, some sort of approval that says you did good. Thank you for doing that. But it doesn't always happen, does it? There are times when we, when we seek to serve others and we are reviled. We are reviled even as we are Striving to live godly lives, even while we're trying to be patient and humble and meek, and yet we're resented and reviled in this world of hostility and conflict, where we're trying to, to bring peace and make peace, and we're turned away, told we don't want what you have to offer. Instead of gratitude, we get hostility. What's your response in those moments? When You've tried, and you've been faithful. You've tried to be meek. You've tried to be patient, and you've gotten resented for it or some kind of hostility in return. What's your, what's your tendency in that moment? It's what Philippians talks about, right? It's complain. This is not right. Well, I'm doing something nice here. And we begin disputing and complaining. As believers, we are called to uniquely Christ-like, Responses, this response of doing all things without disputing and complaining means even responding to injustice or disdain without returning fire, without returning evil for evil. And as we do, that response that is so different is like a light that points to Jesus. That's, that's just one way in which we are like a light that says, I am not like this ordinarily. By nature, I want to punch you in this moment. I want to say something nasty back to you. But by God's grace, by Christ's transforming work, He is the reason for my patience and humility. That's how we be the light of the world. We we give glory and credit repeatedly back to our Savior and say, I didn't come this way, become this way by virtue of just getting smart and figuring this out and reading a book on how to be a nice person. Jesus has changed me. Let me share with you the truth of what Jesus Christ has done. Pointing back to him and letting people know that. That's why ultimately, at least some, as as he says here in verse 16, some will see our good works and God will receive glory from that. God will use that to draw them to himself, and will save them, and will be glorified. Jesus also explains here, just as he did with the salt, if you don't do this, if his followers don't do this, if you either respond to circumstances just like the world does in its darkness, and your response is to just act like a person who is blinded in sin, or even to, to shade the gospel. I do something kind, but, but you would have no idea that it has anything to do with Jesus and the gospel, and you would be left to think that it's just me and how wonderful I am. What we are doing is we are hiding, he says, this life-altering truth. It's like we're we're taking a shade and we're putting it right over the light, and we're causing people to, to see us instead of seeing Jesus. That's what he's calling us to. His point is, is ultimately about putting this light under a basket, is to to live like the world, and and, and that's just merely blending in with the world's shadows. We live to show people that whatever they find good or attractive in us is attributable back to our King. It is because we, we belong to the kingdom of God and because of the gracious work of Jesus Christ in us. The German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. That's why Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. To not be such is to deny your very identity as a subject of Jesus Christ. We are not sodium, we are not phosphorus, we we are not those elements. But what he's saying is this is your identity as a people that I have brought into my kingdom. This is what should mark you. Your active daily pursuit of righteousness and holiness your mercy and meekness toward others, your devotion to his truth, your willingness to suffer for his name, your boldness to speak truth against sin, and your persistence in speaking about Jesus and the gospel. These are the things that make you salt and light. And to repeatedly shun such things is to be as useless as contaminated salt or light that's been put beneath the cover. We belong to the kingdom of the Savior who loved us and gave himself for us and who now empowers us to live for him, to love him, and to give our lives in serving and glorifying him and manifesting his greatness for people to see. We have the privilege now of reflecting back the mercy, grace, and justice of our King and Savior. And in that process, to joyously influence the world around us so that the kingdom of God would be multiplied. So as we close this morning, I, I want to bring a couple of specific applications to your mind as we close and then as we pray in a moment. If, if you're like me, this, this passage has brought a very healthy measure of conviction. People will sometimes say to me after a sermon, man, that that one really hit. Well, I, as I've said to people repeatedly, I'm just sharing the same hitting that I took, the same conviction, the same weight that I've felt this week. I'm just trying to give you a little bit of a piece of that. And so hopefully you've felt some of the weight of this passage. It's not hard at all to think about circumstances just in the last days where I lacked the conviction to be salt or could have spoken against decay or corruption or done something And so, first, there's an opportunity here for confession. Asking God for more grace and more help to be salt, to help to prevent decay and to light the way to Jesus. And then then I want you to expand that as we pray, And, and, and this is what I want to urge you to do this week, and that is to pray for us as a body of believers, that within the community where God has placed us, here in Lorton, that we would grow as being salt of the earth and light of the world. That, that, that God would say approvingly of Grace Bible Church, you are salt of the earth, you are light of the world, that, that pray for your brothers and sisters, your fellow believers, that, that when we are with the people of the world, be it in our neighborhood, be it family members, be it at your job, wherever it might be, that we would be salt and light. And then one more specific way to pray. Tomorrow morning, a lot of you will, well, a lot of them are upstairs, some of you will be in classrooms. Some of you will be in classrooms as students, some will be as teachers all over this area, schools starting back up. Right here, this building will be filled for the first time by a school that one of its purposes is to train young ones to be salt and light to help them understand what it is to think well and think biblically about the world around them and to grow in becoming those who prevent decay, but who also light the way to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I want you to also think about the staff here of Lagos Classical Academy. If we could pop up the picture here. There they are. Good looking group that they are. Wanted you to see them. Because I know you interact with Stuart and I and the elders here and the deacons on Sunday morning. You might not know who all is part of the school here, so I want you to get a glimpse of them. Because I want that to be an application of this as you pray this week. That God would enable them to be salt and light amongst the lives that God has entrusted to their care. Just like he would empower us to be salt and light in the homes and neighborhoods and communities where God has placed us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, please, please grow us as influencers in our culture. Convict our silence. Bring conviction when we are shading the gospel in some way. cause us to to see the the poverty of such thinking that would diminish holiness, that would plunge the, the gospel back into darkness in some way so that others would not see it through us and in us. And Lord, we pray for grace, for wisdom. For growth and commitment to, to be salt and light. To see the decay around us and not simply wring our hands. Or be annoyed by it. But to speak the words of scripture to it. To point out where it comes short of your good design. And then, by your spirit and your grace to be a people who, by our words and our works, would frequently give others around us a clear line of sight to seeing Christ, that they would see something that is uniquely Christ-like and hear Christ-like words from us. Forgive us for when we have been ashamed of your gospel, when we have shrunk back. Pray that you would empower us to see that the most transforming thing to happen to anyone in this room or watching online is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the change that's wrought by his saving work. May we live to to speak about that and to glorify you on account of it. Father, again, if there's anyone listening this morning who is somehow coming away from the Sermon on the Mount with a conviction that all they need to do is be a better person, do more good works, and that will satisfy you and earn them a place in your kingdom. I pray, Lord, that, that you would not allow them to go from here thinking that at all, that, that their hope must be founded only in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it is the death and resurrection of the perfect Son of God, paying the price for sin dying on the cross and rising again, that that is the the person, that is the event that we put our hope in. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and rose again on the third day, and that by acknowledging my sinfulness and believing in Jesus Christ, there is salvation in His name and no other. Lord, we pray for the ministries of Grace Bible Church be they men's or women's, youth, children, Lagos, all of the different works that are done here, Lord, we pray that this would not be about our fame, about our somehow measuring numerical growth and and summing it all up in that, but Lord, that, that what we do here, that how we serve here would be a tribute to your grace at work in our lives, and that because of what we do together as a community, The gospel of Jesus Christ and its effect on Lorton and this surrounding area would be multiplied and your kingdom would be expanded because of faithful service to your work. Thank you for what you've given us to do and what you have empowered us to do. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.